Henry Nouwen uh, was a religious leader, a pastor, uh, and uh, a brilliant teacher. And he taught at places uh, like Harvard and Yale. And um, about the last decade of his life, or at least entering into the last decade of his life, he uh, was really in a season of uh, just uh, feeling and sensing himself to be spiritually parched. And so led by the Lord on this, he spent the last decade of his life uh, having taught at places like Harvard and Yale. He spent the last decade of his life uh, living in a community with people who had severe, severe emotional and mental and physical disabilities. Um, Last decade of his life. And he found it to be an incredibly healing time enormously healing for him. And while he was there in this community, he um, began a relationship with a man named Trevor. Trevor. He had severe mental and emotional challenges. And at one point in time, Henry's community actually sent Trevor uh, to a psychiatric facility for evaluation. Well, while Trevor was at this psychiatric facility, uh, Henry wanted to visit him. And just pastor him and love on him. So he called the hospital to arrange a visit uh, for lunch. Well, when the administration of the hospital discovered it was Henry Nowen who was going to be coming, they quickly asked Henry if uh, they could host a lunch with him in the Golden Room. The Golden Room. It was a special meeting room that he could meet with the faculty. It would be a special luncheon with doctors and clergy. He asked Henry, and Henry said, okay, I'll come. So Henry arrived at the psychiatric facility, and when they took him to the golden room, I mean, he got in there, and and he looked around, and Trevor was nowhere to be seen. Nowhere. He couldn't couldn't find Trevor. And... uh, Henry was troubled at this, and so he asked the, the boss of the facility. He said, where's, uh, you know, uh, where's Trevor? Oh, and the, the administrator said, well, Trevor can't come to this lunch. The pa- patients and staff are, are not allowed to have lunch together, and, and plus, no patient has ever had lunch in the golden room. Henry Nowen said, no, I'm not the confrontational type. Um, He said, but I know this much, community is all about inclusion. So he turned to the boss, he turned to the person in charge, and uh, he said very kindly, but very firmly, uh, the whole purpose of my coming here was to have lunch with Trevor. And uh, if Trevor is not allowed to attend this lunch, then I will not attend either. And the boss quickly changed the rules so that Trevor could come and uh, found a way for him to attend. And so they, ga- they all gathered together, and there they are in the golden room, and then something very interesting happened. Henry was talking to one of the PhDs there in the room and kind of took his eyes off of Trevor, hadn't noticed him for just a moment, but in that moment, Trevor stood up and he lifted his Coca-Cola glass in his hand. And he said in front of everybody in the room, 
I would like to offer a toast. I want to offer a toast. And everybody in the room, I mean, froze. They were, what is going to happen next? What's Trevor going to do? And then Trevor, this deeply challenged man in a room full of PhDs, started to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy, and nobody was sure. You were there, weren't you? If you're happy and you know it, raise your right. Nobody was sure what to do. They were just, and so here was this man, his level of challenge and brokenness. They couldn't begin to understand. But here he was, he was beaming, he was smiling, he was so thrilled to be there. And so, and so, they started mumbling. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. You were there, right? If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And so everybody was singing louder and louder until the doctors and the clergy, Henry, they were all practically shouting, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And Henry went on to give his talk. But nobody remembered that talk. They did remember God speaking. And the moment God spoke most clearly in that luncheon was through the person they all would have said was the least likely to speak for God. Now, if that touches your soul wherever you are today, okay, I think you're going to like, well, like, I think you're going to be able to hear what it is James is saying to us in our scripture this morning, in the New Testament book of James, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. We are journeying through this letter uh, of James as he writes to Christians in the first century, instructing them how to live like Jesus. And the words that he says to Christians 2,000 years ago are really words that we need to pay attention to. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. You'll find that on page 854 of your church Bibles, the navy blue Bibles that are in the pouch in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take that and put your name in it and you can take it home with you as our gift. 854 is where we'll find James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And, and you know, these verses... Um, just in reflection of Henry Nouwen's experience, are really about, they're really about how dangerous it is to judge people based on externals. These verses are really about the danger of showing partiality based on outward appearances. James uses the word favoritism. Favoritism. And we're going to live with this word here this morning. And as we look through these verses in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I just want to answer three questions. And the first is this. What is favoritism? How does James define what favoritism is? Secondly, why is it such a problem? What makes it as if we don't know already? Let's, let's let James clarify why it's such a problem, this problem of showing favoritism the sin of favoritism as James will teach us and then you know now what you know how how is it what's the alternative that James calls not only the Christians that existed 2,000 years ago but what's he calling us to today all right what so what now what 
That's where we're going. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Uh, Literally, verse 1 says, my brothers, my brothers, uh, don't hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory, in favoritisms. That's plural. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Verse 2 says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, well, you, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I mean, it's hard to believe that something like what we just read here would actually have happened in James' day. I mean, I mean, we would expect this kind of thing in the world of politics or in the world of, of business. We expect people to size other people up by cozying up to them and rendering them homage so that then they can help us, this sort of quid pro quo. I give you respect. I give you choice seats. I give you attention. And then you, in turn, then you can give me something. You can help make my life easier. This, it, you know, our world knows it's just business. It's just the way the, it's just kind of the, the way the wheels are greased and everything. And so we expect that in Springfield or in Chicago or in Washington. But at a church service? In a church service? Really? James says, yes, really. You see, he's the pastor of these Christians who are reading these letters. And even though these Christians have been scattered away from their hometown of Jerusalem because of persecution, even though they've, been, even they've had to leave their homeland, Israel, James, James still has his ear to the ground. He's got his pulse on the life of these scattered believers that are then gathering in little synagogue assemblies outside of Jerusalem, outside their homeland. And he hears some things that are going on that, frankly, just disturbs him. Like two individuals entering the worship gathering together. But it's obvious that they didn't come together. I mean, first comes someone gold-fingered. That's how James puts it. Gold-fingered. Gold-fingered and silver-threaded. Clothes of the wealthy back then in the first century sometimes had silver thread woven into the fabric which when you went outside in the sunlight made for brilliant color in the light. Silver and gold has entered the synagogue gathering and and when silver and gold enter the synagogue gathering the people part like the Red Sea as this person finds his way to his reserved seat, his choice seat, right up here, right up front. This guy has obviously not arrived at our church service yet. <laughs> we can't give the tickets away enough here. So, anyway. <laughs> oh no. Back then, I mean front row seats, huh? He's then followed by a poor, filthy, shabby hobo. 
and the chief usher. I mean, the chief usher says to the first, here, here, come. And, you know, he takes the broom and brush and, and brushes off the seat. Here, have a seat, please. Good view, good seat, glad to see you. And that same usher does not know what to do with the second. Doesn't even know what to do. Says, well, just, just, just stand over there. We'll get to you in a minute. In the corner there. Yeah. yeah just stand. Okay, now turn around. Yeah, okay. Just, you know. And, uh, or, or, here, just take a seat at the base of this footstool, which in that culture would be the ultimate insult. You see, Psalm 110, verse 1, says this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a what? A footstool for your feet. Oh my goodness. See, that's the ultimate insult. And James says that at that moment, when, when, when that kind of partiality appears in the worship service, at that very moment when that happens, this congregation of Christ-exalting worshipers immediately gets transformed into a courtroom of crooked judges. He says that when we show special kindness based on, on appearance and partiality, I mean, you've just transformed a worshiping congregation into a courtroom of crooks. That's favoritism. See, see favoritism says... God made us all, but. The word favoritism here in the scriptures literally means to lift the face. You see, in that day when folks greeted each other, and in many cultures today, you know, greetings occur with what? The, with they, they, the guest bows, they bow. And so, and so then the host then will lift the face, you see. And, and the message is clear. I receive you. You are welcome. I accept your face. But James says some were not being received. They were not being accepted. They were being rejected because of their poverty-stricken faces. Christians were showing favor to rich faces and rejecting the poor faces. Furthermore, as I said earlier, James chapter 2, verse 1 literally says, do not hold in favoritisms, the plural. Do not hold in favoritisms. In other words, there's more than one way to show favoritism. And we know that in America. Favoritism based on age or size or race or beauty or education or community status or intelligence or bank account or neighborhood or clothing. Many people go to church, as everybody knows. Some go to close their eyes and some to eye their clothes. Almost without thinking how easy it is to we greet someone, we just start sizing them up. Right? And James says that favoritism and Jesus don't belong in the same sentence. And he calls the foul. He blows the whistle and he calls the foul. In church family, that's one of the reasons why I believe that Christianity is true. True, true. Because if I were making up my own religion, and if I were making up my own religious document, I wouldn't include this. 
Why would I include something so self-indicting? Oh, but James says, no. Right's right and wrong's wrong. And this is wrong. And it's wrong when an apostle does it. And it's wrong when a congregation does it. Favoritism. It's sin. It's sin. And, he, and, and, and here's why. As if, as if we need an explanation. James says, well, by the way, you know, here's why. James, James says that favoritism is offensive and unwise and sinful for two reasons. And the first is this. It makes no sense. It may, it's, it's irrational. Totally irrational. Uh, favoritism is totally illogical. Now, you, you remember these churches that first heard this letter. I mean, this letter is, uh, it just didn't come out of nowhere. This letter was once read in a worshiping assembly, and, and those assemblies consisted of Christians who were scattered from their hometown, Jerusalem, and outside of their homeland, and they had to resettle. And as a result, they're facing double discrimination. They're, they're facing race-based discrimination. The Romans discriminated against them because they were Hebrews. And then they're also facing faith-based discrimination. The Hebrews discriminated against these Hebrews because they were Hebrew Christians. Double discrimination was what was going on here. And, and now, James says, you all are caught up in this yourselves. And James, he just shakes his head over the situation of some of these churches. And as he reminds him that the very ones to whom they are kowtowing are using their wealth and their influence and their power to garnish their wages unfairly, to subpoena them to court, whereby a real judge will hand over their property and their land and their livestock only to enrich themselves. And all along the way, these rich, evil oppressors are mocking the name of Jesus. And James says, and you're showing favoritism to them? You're killing me, people. Verses 6 and 7 say, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? In 1987, Melody Beatty wrote a land-breaking, groundbreaking book called The Codependent No More. I don't know if you've heard that book or not. Um, it's a very good book in which she defined codependency as this. A codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. I wonder if she stole that from James. Isn't that what James says is going on? These Hebrew Christians have let the oppressive rich affect them to the degree that now these Christians are trying to manipulate and control the wealthy's behavior by partiality. I mean, that's what favoritism tries to do. It's a very subtle power grab. It's about control. It's a dysfunctional attempt to manipulate those who in the end will hurt you. And that's why it's silly. But James gives us another reason which uh, make up really the bulk of the rest of this scripture reading church family. I mean, it's, you know, favoritism is first of all, it's sin, it's unwise because it's irrational. But then he gives a deeper reason and it's this. 
it's idolatrous. It's idolatrous. It's when Christians, when Christians show favoritism, we usurp that which belongs to God and God alone. We make, we make ourselves out to be idols, you see. We, because we exalt ourselves. We put ourselves in a seat that is reserved solely for the Almighty. When we show favoritism, we are saying to the Almighty, all-knowing, omnipresent maker and creator of all things, visible and invisible, I want your job. I, and I think I can do your job better than you. God. Oh yeah, verse 5. Listen, my brothers, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Literally, you have devalued the poor. You've, you've devalued those whom God is giving the kingdom. Now, now listen, pay attention. God does not choose the poor merely because they are poor, merely because they are penniless. Just that fact alone doesn't mean that God chooses them, nor does he reject the rich merely because they are rich. I mean, if, if that were true, why do anything to alleviate poverty? At the same time, for the last 2,000 years, Christianity tends to reach more of those who are in poverty than those who are in prosperity. And why? We know why. Affluence tends to breed spiritual amnesia. We get rich and we forget God. And that's not as much of a problem when you've lost everything and you realize God is all there is. And that is what many in Haiti are experiencing right now. Uh, CNN had this interesting article titled, Many Haitians' Religious Faith Unshaken by Earthquake. Reporter Arthur Bryce wrote, Haiti's earthquake has only strengthened the religious fervor many Haitians carry in their souls. People don't blame Jesus for all these things, 24-year-old Christina Bailey said. They have faith. They believe that Jesus saved them and are thankful for that. A lot of people who never prayed or believed, now they believe. You see, the poor in possessions often become poor in spirit because God is all they have. And, and, and that kind of poverty of spirit is, is what Jesus says makes you blessed. Jesus said the first of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit means, God, I have no spiritual resources. God, I'm spiritually bankrupt. God, I'm empty. And we've seen that, we've seen that in Haiti, and we see that in Champaign County. And I've seen that in hospitals, and I've seen that at funerals. And this is the hard part. This is the hard part. You never see life so clearly as when you're poor in spirit. You don't. You know, I, I've prayed with some of you in the emergency room. And I've been to that, uh, that a crying room, that crying waiting room where parents hear that awful news that their child has died. I've been back to the room with the family 
on other situations as the family is gathered with a loved one who has just departed to be with the Lord. And uh, I've met with families that the casket is right here, right there. And the lid is about to close and the family weeps and they're just broken because they miss their loved one. Or at graveside, as the, as the dirt is being sprinkled over the vault. And, and those around the casket or the gurney, they're just broken spiritually. There's poverty of spirit. And, and I saw some of that poverty of spirit Friday night at Celebrate Recovery. And you know, sometimes people say, in those settings right there, sometimes people say, you know, later on, later on in a few weeks or a few months when, you know, things will be better when I'm able to see things more clearly. And what I want to tell you is, no! No, at that moment, around the casket and around the graveside and in the emergency room and at Celebrate Recovery, church family, at that moment, at that time, you are seeing life absolutely clear you are because you're seeing that life is fragile and you are seeing that you're not God and that God is God and that we are weak and vulnerable but God is able God is God and we are not now at that very moment at that very moment when you are seeing life as clearly as you will ever see life would you want to be devalued by someone else would you, would you want your own brother and sister in Jesus Christ, you know, to, to go for someone with gold when what they're seeing in your life is absolute clarity? James says, how can this happen? But that's what's happening. You've devalued the very ones to whom God has given the kingdom. And he says, as a result, you violated the royal law Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, the royal law, that phrase means the capital law, the climactic law. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what, and that's what the Old Testament can be summarized. And we know this as, you know, the greatest commandment is loving God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus Christ through the parable of the Good Samaritan, redefined the definition of neighbor to anyone I find in need. Anyone. Anyone. Rich, poor, Hebrew, non-Hebrew, servant, free. Your neighbor is anyone you find in need. Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament. Loving God and loving people. And, and, and you know that we only love God as much as the person we love the least. James says, if, you, if you're doing that, good for you. Verse 8. But verse 9 says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And when we show favoritism, James says, that's as bad as cheating on your wife or killing her. Yeah, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. You see, we have a hard time registering with that right there. It's one of the hardest verses in the Bible to read because we like to think of 
we like to think of law keeping and the commands and all that like, you know, the point system for driver's violations, right? You know, you get so many points for speeding and so many points for this and so many, or we like to think of keeping the law like a grade point average. Well, I tanked on that class, but I'm, I'm going to do better on the next one. So my average is, you know, well, that's not God's system. It's not his system. Here's God's system. Violate any portion of his law, and you violated the lawgiver. That's it. That's his system. Okay? That's it. He gave the law. He made the law. And, and, so, and, and James says, look, here's, and here's your offense. Let's go back to that verse 1, literally. My brothers, do not hold in favoritisms the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. The Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. You, favoritism pursues another glory other than Jesus' glory. James says that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ who is the glory. Well, the word glory literally means weightiness or density or substance. And, and in the Old Testament when people saw the glory of God, it was always enveloped by this cloud, this translucent fire-filled cloud. That's why Exodus 24, 17 says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a, de a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So it drew the people into this, 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 this glorious cloud, but, then it was a, but it was dangerous. Well, James here calls Jesus the glory. The glory. And when you became a Christian, get this, Jesus gave you his glory. That's right. That's why Colossians 3, 3 and 4 say, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. What's that say? In glory. In glory. But some of these Christians have forgotten Christ's glory. Some of these Christians have forgotten that Jesus gave up his glory and came to earth in the flesh to be crucified. Whereas we deserve judgment, God through Christ on the cross gave us mercy so that we could have his glory. And by going after counterfeit glory, they forfeit the true glory. Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 says this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Some of you are going after idols and they're dead. They're, and you're going to be dead because you become what you worship. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. You become what you worship. And then you begin to discriminate, see, and show partiality to other people based on what you worship. And James is saying, you're going after the wrong God here. Jesus, the glorious one, he's the one to pursue. And that's why verses 12 and 13 conclude by saying, you speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Kind of reminds you of that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus, Jesus was James' brother. I mean, we would expect to see that here. 
And verse 13 concludes, mercy triumphs over judgment. That word triumph literally means out debates. Out debates, out argues. Mercy and judgment had an argument and mercy outshouted judgment. That's it. Favoritism is judging people on outward appearance. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's illogical. It's irrational. And then it's idolatrous. Now what? Now what? Well, here's the now what. Friends, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the now what. Okay. God wants me to be as merciful to all others as he has been to me. And I have to confess, and, and if you read my Friday email... Uh, and I send out an email each Friday just to kind of give you news and updates on what's going on in the life of the church family. If you want to get on that email list, uh, just sign the registration card and, and we'll, we'll get you on the, the Friday, um, my Friday email. But, but I mentioned Friday as we were thinking about this passage of Scripture. You know, do we have a problem with this? You know, do, 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 I mean, do we? You know, my, see, my biggest struggle is the assumption that because I don't see it in a Sunday morning worship, and I, you know, I don't think we, you know, show favoritism in seating arrangements and things like that. I, mean, I, I don't think we've asked anybody to sit at the base of a footstool. I just, you know, I, if that's happened to you, I'm sorry. Um, here's what I think, Okay. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you, if I were teaching pastoral ministries at Urbana Theological Seminary, I, I teach that class for the school, and if I were teaching pastoral ministries at Urbana Theological Seminary, and you were my class, here's what I would say. I would say, students, um, you know, at Windsor Road, the temptation towards favoritism is probably not as strong in this worship room as it is out in the foyer. See, that's where we're going to see it, I believe. Because when I'm out there near the Welcome Center, there I am after church standing there, and I see two individuals coming my way. And one of them is spiritually and emotionally healthy, and this guy is cool, and he's hip, and he's got a magnetic personality. He oozes charisma. He's from Tulsa. lives in southern hills, and, and, and believe me, there is not a neighborhood in this community that comes close to southern hills. Trust me on that one. When that guy comes my way, I'm telling you, I could just hang on this guy's elbow 24-7. I love being that guy's pastor. Being that guy's pastor makes me feel good about being me. You bet. And then there's the other guy. He's a spiritual dork. He's just a misfit. He just, he's just not as cool. He's not as cool. And so the temptation, of course, is to hang around the first guy. The temptation, of course, is just to pass through that first guy. To, and, and to tolerate the second. To tolerate the second. And it's the difference between moving toward the really hip person 
versus seeing the other person down the hall and just kind of walking away like, okay, I got to go. Can't handle this person. Can't deal with it. James calls the foul. That's favoritism, Bolting House. That's favoritism. That's wrong. Favoritism seeks to play God in the lives of others. And I don't want it in the foyer. I don't want it in this room. I don't want it in a small group. I don't want it in the neighborhood. I don't want it, period. Because that's not how I treat you. And I think the strongest uh, quote that I found this week comes from Bishop Desmond Tutu. Favoritism, this is what Bishop Tutu said. He said, favoritism's most vicious most blasphemous aspect is not the suffering it causes its victims, but that it can make a child of God doubt that he is a child of God. And God help us if we ever treat anybody in here in such a way that to make them doubt that they're a child of God or could be a child of God. God help us. Is there, is, there a way that, is there a way that we can keep ourselves from this sin? Is there? Well, yes, James already tells us. He's already told us. He says that the only way to lift the faces of all, rich or poor, is to keep ourselves, to keep our faces buried in the mirror of God's Word. Isn't that what he said in chapter 1? Who looks at his face in the mirror and then after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like, James says, no, look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do so. The reason why we fail in lifting the faces of all is that we've not kept our faces in the mirror of God's word where we will find the face of the crucified one, where we will find the face of the word made flesh, where we will find the face of of the one who hung on a Roman cross, the face whom God the Father did not lift, which is why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's because the Father did not lift up the face of his beloved Son so that you could see his face. And so once you see both the poor and the rich through the face of Christ, you're never, going to see the, you're never going to see either of them the same way again. You won't. And once you get it, that Jesus, who is the glory, has given you His glory so that you will appear with Him in glory, you're never going to go after cheap gold ever again in your life. You won't, I promise. Why on earth would anybody go for the gold when they've tasted the glory of Christ? That's why James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the now what. Just one more thing. I was sharing uh, in a small group uh, last week um, about this passage, and someone in our small group said, well, I know a good story uh, that I read that, will, that, that goes right along with this. And it's the story of the old senior usher who served in a large downtown church in the 1960s. And one Sunday, the church was packed, kind of like today. Packed with suits and ties and, I mean, dapperly dressed worshipers. 
And this church was packed, and all of a sudden, I mean one Sunday, while the church was packed, this long-haired, bell-bottomed, barefoot hippie marched right into the service. And he couldn't find a place to sit, so he sauntered down the center of the aisle before an usher could stop him. In fact, he just walked right up to the front of the, front of the sanctuary and sat cross-legged on the floor before the pulpit and before the pastor started to preach. <laughs> well, this dignified senior usher sprang into action, beelined it right down there to the front of the church. The whole congregation was tense because... You know, they, they, they were awaiting what they thought was going to be an inevitable confrontation between the dapperly dressed pillar of the church and this, you know, flower child hippie hobo. And to the surprise of all, this usher, when he got to the front, sat down cross-legged in his Brooks Brothers suit right next to the guest. <laughs> and everybody in that room smiled. They were happy and they knew it. And you know why? You know why? Because they remembered that in a place like this, Jesus, and only Jesus, gets the best seat in the house. Amen.